This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hey there, and welcome to the Syndicate's first bonus episode, an interview with Special Agent Steve Bratton at the Colorado Department of Revenue. Bratton is a numbers guy, the veteran financial investigator who pieced together the Syndicate's money laundering tactics. He was on the raid at Tree's apartment in October 2014. We ended up finding uh, $750,000 in a two-bedroom apartment, stuffed everywhere. I mean, every drawer, every, I mean, there was money everywhere. It was unbelievable. But for almost six months before that, Bratton was hard at work behind the scenes, scrutinizing tax records and following the dark trails of money flowing into and out of the syndicate's coffers. His analysis supported over a dozen of the criminal charges a grand jury leveled against the syndicate. In other words, Bratton's financial sleuthing made up a significant part of the state's legal case. But how did he do it? During our series, we aired some of Bratton's recollections about taking down the syndicate. But my interview with him went deeper. By the time the syndicate popped up on his radar in 2014, he had spent the better part of a decade devising strategies to map out the financial structures of pot trafficking groups in Colorado. It all informed his role in Operation Golden Gopher, and his rise to becoming the state's top financial investigator around marijuana crimes. He says that there was a steep learning curve, though. At the time of Bratton's first case in 2009, he specialized in tax investigations, white-collar crimes. But a friend pushed him in a different direction. Michael Melito, one of the state's up-and-coming prosecutors, the same prosecutor who'd later take point on the syndicate's case, was looking into a pot-smuggling group. Melito asked Bratton if he could dissect the organization's finances. And initially, Bratton remembers feeling reluctant. So it's kind of funny because, like, I didn't want to be involved with any of this. And Mike got me involved with that case. And he's like, hey, man. He goes, I said, Mike, I don't want to be involved with this marijuana stuff. I said, I don't want to. I said, dude, I do financial, like, tax stuff. I don't want to be involved with all this drug stuff. Uh-huh. He's like, he's like, no, man. He goes, he goes, this case could be really good. I think you could do like some fun stuff financially. And, you know, I think it's a provable thing. And he goes, I really need your help. And I was like, so I reluctantly helped him. <laughs> and then he drugged me into a couple of other things. And, and I've been doing it. That's all I've been doing for the last, whatever it's been, seven, eight years, nine years now. That's all I've been doing. Oh, wow. You've exclusively been doing uh-huh. marijuana investigations since then. Uh-huh. <laughs> Little did you know what that favor was going to mean for you. Yeah, I, and, and I think, that, you know, I think we made a difference, though. Made a difference because before 2009, when Bratton began honing a number of investigative techniques, he says that a lot of marijuana enforcement in Colorado was haphazard. I understand that, like, probably 90 percent of or higher of investigations that are done by your local police are cultivation cases where officers would, you know, go to a house or go to a property and, hey, I smell marijuana growing. Um, I look at the electrical records. I go in there. They went in there and take the plants down. And that was your general cases. Right. And electrical records were always a big tip off. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. And then the smell or, you know, uh, maybe you do a trash run or something like that and see the 
marijuana and the you know clippings in the trash or <laughs> plastic bags for packaging in the trash, you know, that kind of stuff. But while local cops might bust one grow in a house basement or sometimes an industrial space, they could miss opportunities to take down larger networks. Because if, if we go down and if I go down and knock a couple grows down in a neighborhood somewhere or something like that, they're going to pop back up someplace else. I mean, was local law enforcement not really connecting things to those levels just because like they'd occasionally get a home grow or whatever and sure they would get that one person but do you suspect that in many cases they were missing organizations like they were seeing the tree rather than the forest 100 percent. and and it's not of a i wouldn't say it's as a fault to the you know to those investigations those agencies i just i don't think that they had the the time the manpower the resources to be able to do those things. In many cases, it also made sense to bust an illegal marijuana grow as soon as cops detected one, if anything, because of the uncertainty of finding more. Unless you have like a, you know, someone who's intimately involved with the criminal operation that you're, you know, it's like an informant that you're using. So unless you have that, I mean, it's damn near impossible to sit around and just like, surveil and wait and wait and wait because you have no idea when it's going to happen. Right, so, yeah. And even in the case of Golden Gopher, I noticed that um, there were two people pulled over. I think both of them were in Nebraska. That was um, Antonio Orfe and Ryan uh-huh. Farrow. And that, that happened before really all the dots were connected right. and, and you had the multi-agency effort at that point. Yeah, that's right. So trying to trying to basically figure out these organizations for domestic marijuana cases, it's very difficult to, um, to see that. And also difficult to use resources for surveillance and eyes on the ground if you don't know what's there. But Melito and Bratton knew there was another way to reveal the size of an illegal marijuana operation, its finances. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Bratton says he improvised at the start. His first big marijuana takedown concerned a dispensary called the Silver Lizard. Like the syndicate, it involved a bunch of close, longtime friends. Which, I love the names, too. Hippie Lady, Purple Guy, Smirnoff, um, Lupe, <laughs> Big Jeremy, Chem Dog, and Toke City. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, it's almost like, what's that, what's that movie um, I'm thinking of? It has like... Like Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, exactly. There, that's the movie I'm thinking of. Yeah, it's like, it's like a, it's like a version of Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but 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 in all seriousness, it was a good case. Um, but it was uh, it was fairly like simple in nature. A guy named Leon Cisneros owned the Silver Lizard. The pot shop had a dedicated following. In fact, the cannabis critic at the publication I used to work for, who went by the alias William Breathes reviewed the dispensary and noted that he was extremely impressed by the ice water bubble hash. But the thing is, Cisneros only sold some of the Silver Lizard's products over the counter. 
back then there wasn't a lot of regulation. There wasn't a lot of law enforcement. So those dudes were, you know, making more money selling things out the back door or whatever it was. And they were uh, through the shops because mm -hmm. back then, shoot, I bet you East Coast pricing was probably close, you know, 4,000 to 4,500 a pound or something back then. So yeah, and it was probably cheaper to import from Colorado than even further out west like California. Oh yeah, yeah, Colorado once it once it became once they opened it up and started allowing people to grow out here, it uh it became California, not that they didn't have their own distribution stuff, but it was a lot easier for people to hit I-70 and I-25 from here than it was from California for sure. The Silver Lizard guys shipped packages of weed through the United States Postal Service, usually up to two pounds, to Massachusetts, Tennessee, and 11 other states. And just like the syndicate, some of the Silver Lizard's most loyal black market customers were college students. The pot growers ran a lucrative mail order business, clearing thousands of dollars for every special delivery made by the USPS from Colorado to college towns back east. And Bratton says he knows this because of a strategy he deployed. Our investigation started really centering not so much on the cultivation of the drugs, but the flow of the money. The flow of the money is a show of the sale. So if you can't get, you don't have the resources to sit on these dudes for weeks and weeks and weeks waiting for one thing to happen. The easiest thing to do is just watch the money come back in. Like watching what people spent as compared to what they reported to the IRS. It was probably the biggest thing that we started doing was getting into the um, extreme detail of the financials of the individuals in the organization. So we were mainly focusing on income taxes. And once Bratton could prove that suspects were earning, investing, and spending way more cash than they were showing on paper, he could tie that cash to money laundering. It's simply that when you take proceeds from illegal activity, and it could be drug dealing, it could be selling guns, it could be you know human trafficking, it could be whatever, anything, mm -hmm. and you use that money to reinvest into the business, that at that point in time is laundered money. Mm -hmm. And so when we went through this, that was a provable charge because we could take those bank records and see where they were going to the marijuana supply stores, where they were going and paying for the electrical, where they're paying for rent on these marijuana grow houses that if you don't pay for those things, what happens? The crop dies. Mm -hmm. And so that's that reinvestment to be able to use that money laundering charge. Still, the investigation was grueling. You know, these cases, they they suck the life out of you. Um, they really do. I mean, they're, it is a, you know, a full-time commitment. And it's and clear you, that you care about it, too. Melito was yeah. in, in praise of you telling me about 11 p.m., midnight, 1 a.m. calls yeah. as you're putting together these cases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't work like normal hours or whatever. Most of these cases are generally between at a minimum nine and generally a year to year and a half. The Silver Lizard investigation lasted nine months. But in August 2012, SWAT teams raided the dispensary and busted 11 people. 
It was then the largest state-led marijuana bust since voters legalized medical pot in 2000. The ensuing grand jury indictment listed 59 separate charges, which the state prosecutor, Melito, elaborately spelled out in narrative detail. Bratton had to admit, despite his initial reluctance, he was hooked on marijuana cases. The following year, Bratton and Melito teamed up again, and Bratton added even more investigative tools to his belt. And that was a case with uh, um, Conley Hoskins was a dispensary owner. He owned, it was called Mary Jane's or something like that. The dispensary was actually called Jane Medicals. I mean, and it was, it was blatant. Like they had this store right off of Colfax mm-hmm. and they had an area in the back that wasn't cameraed or anything. And dudes from Texas all day long, just coming up and, and pulling out of that store uh, from, from the parking lot. It was, it was, I mean, pounds and pounds and pounds going down to Texas. In this case, Bratton found an argument to draw up tax evasion charges. He told me that when Colorado legalized recreational marijuana in 2012, the state added extra fees for pot called excise taxes, similar to the taxes many states make you pay for alcohol or gasoline. So Bratton nailed the pot traffickers for avoiding the new taxes. So the tax evasion cases that we generally started doing once retail happened were all associated with excise tax. Now that makes our cases um, from a tax perspective and the attorney general's office ability to prosecute a hell of a lot easier. Because now when I look at bank records or you know all the various different things that I do mm-hmm. um, to be able to trace money, as soon as I start seeing cash coming back in, that's evidence of sale, which is then attributed to the excise tax. But more importantly, in what Bratton considers the critical development before he started looking into the syndicate, he and the state's attorney general's office worked with federal authorities to seize assets from the accused drug traffickers. Working in conjunction with um, the DEA, who then put us in contact with the U.S. attorney's office and specifically their forfeiture section, that is when the cases started becoming full circle and we truly started dismantling and taking away the organization's ability to operate was by taking away their financial resources. Cash, properties, bank accounts, cars, all of it is fair game for civil asset forfeiture if investigators can reasonably argue they're tied to drug money. And by having the Fed step in and seize property, individuals accused of trafficking, even if they post bail and get out of jail, find themselves without the means of sustaining a large illegal operation. That's exactly what happened with the syndicate, but also what happened when the hammer came down on Jane Medicals in June 2013. A state grand jury returned a 71-count indictment that time. In just two years, Bratton, Melito, and their marijuana dream team had moved miles beyond the isolated, piecemeal pot bus that local cops had been carrying out. The strategies have allowed Colorado authorities to map out, then dismantle entire drug trafficking organizations all at once. And it's not perfect. I mean, there's still plenty of organizations that are growing weed and profiting from it. But we've we did a pretty good job of going after some, you know, a handful of the organizations that we had evidence of and 
making a public statement as far as law enforcement now, uh, which is, a, I think, probably the biggest impact. And I was talking to Chris Schatz about this the other day. The Denver Police Department's lead detective on the syndicate case. Well, Chris, I said, man, I said, look at that. Like I said, back in the day, dude, there was like two of us. <laughs> Seriously, there's nobody. And we couldn't get help. And we didn't have anybody helping us. Like even back when we were doing uh, Tree's case, I said, dude, I said, the best thing we can possibly do is to do these criminal cases and make them public. I said, I said, because if we do these things right, which we did do them right, I said, maybe the local law enforcement in different places will be like, hey, and show them a roadmap, say, Here, here's how you do these things. I was like, maybe we can get people to start doing cases again. Mm-hmm. And so that is what did happen. The other agencies were like, holy crap, what are you guys doing? How are you guys doing that? Bratton felt happy to take their calls and share his tips. I was like, this is, I said, that is the best thing that we could have possibly done. Because just like anything else, you can only do so much by yourself. Today, Bratton says that local district attorneys and police departments are modeling what he and Melito devised at the state level. Upon discovering an illegal marijuana grow, if there's suspicion it's part of a large network, hold off. Don't storm one location before seeing if it's tied to something bigger. Sit back, analyze the flow of money, and chart out the operatives to see if you might take down a sophisticated trafficking ring. Bratton learned all those lessons right before the syndicate came into his crosshairs. So once we had like that full team set up where you had the DEA and their federal resources, the U.S. Attorney's Office doing the forfeiture part, the local Denver PD with their surveillance and their street level stuff that they're so good at, and then my abilities to do the money part of it, it really, it was like a, it was like a full team, you know, you had offense, defense, special teams. I'm a football guy. So, you know, you had all, you had all all parts of it. You had coaching, you had everything. Yeah. That's like your dream team. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's team, man. I mean, you know, the the kickers is as as important as the quarterback. So. (laughs) Bratton doesn't anticipate the team leaving the field anytime soon. So long as there's a marijuana black market, he'll have his work cut out for him as he knows better than anyone. There is a shit ton of money in this stuff. There ain't no doubt about that. (laughs) Shit ton. (laughs) That was Special Agent Steve Bratton at the Colorado Department of Revenue. And this was the first bonus episode of The Syndicate. We've got at least one more coming to your feed soon, so stay tuned. In the meantime, for more about The Syndicate, you can check out our website at thesyndicatepodcast.com. The Syndicate is a co-production of Foxipus Inc. and Imperative Entertainment. Executive producer is Jason Hoke. Produced and edited by Laura Krantz and Scott Carney. The Syndicate is scored and mixed by Louis Weeks. I'm your host and creator, Chris Walker. And please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps more people find out about our show. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.